Welcome to episode 63 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. We're going to be talking mainly about art this week because there are so many brilliant exhibitions that are now on and are opening this month. So you remember Deborah Swallow from The Courtauld came on to talk about its fabulous uh, refurbishment. Well, I've just been to the opening of its latest blockbuster exhibition. It's odd to call it a blockbuster because The Courtauld as you know, is the sort of perfect gallery because it's small and perfectly formed. And this blockbuster exhibition is in just two rooms, but it contains extraordinarily half of all of Van Gogh's self-portraits. It runs until May and it's got 16 of these self-portraits and they're all painted between sort of 1886 and 1889. And it's just a kind of amazing thing to sort of go in the room and see 16 Van Gogh staring at you and to see the different way he portrayed himself. There's even... The two last, there's two portraits from 1887, which particularly struck me, which were painted while he was in a mental asylum, just a few weeks apart. And they've never, ever been in the same room since, as it were, he painted them, let them dry and off they went. But it's definitely a must see. It's definitely a notch on your art bedpost. You won't probably see a Van Gogh exhibition like this again in your lifetime. So go and see it. God, how fantastic. I'm very envious of you for having seen that, Ed. Now, if you like the work of Louise Bourgeois and all her glorious gigantic spiders, another exhibition opening is The Woven Child. Actually, it opened yesterday at the Haywood Gallery on London South Bank. It's a major retrospective and focuses on her work using fabrics and textiles. Given Louise Bourgeois has never failed to be provocative, the exhibition has a bit of a health warning, not suitable for children under 10, as it contains artistic depictions of a sexual nature, nudity, pregnancy and childbirth. Well, what else would you expect from her? You have been warned, but that's definitely one for me. And at Dulwich Picture Gallery, meanwhile, there's an exhibition of woodcuts by the American abstract expressionist Helen Frankenthaler. She died in 2011 and this exhibition has had absolutely rave reviews and it aims to put her firmly on the map as one of the most important American abstract artists of the 20th century. So the Hogarth is still running at Tate Britain. Uh, you, We had the curator on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and I found that a sort of fascinating discussion. Uh, what I found intriguing when we talked to the creator was the, the feeling that she could show pictures that were perhaps controversial, there might even be an argument that you shouldn't show them, but because there was the opportunity for people to respond to them and put them in context and so on, uh, it allows those pictures to be shown. And also, uh, Labina Himid is showing at Tate Modern. Obviously, she's the great figure to artist, activist, 2017 Turner Prize winner. She was a theatrical designer. She's had a huge contribution to the British Black Arts Movement. It's a great opportunity to see a comprehensive exhibition of her work and also we're going to get a surrealism exhibition at Tate Modern uh, just around the corner it's coming up shortly. So moving out of London now there are also some of Lubaina Himid's prints at Pallant House a gallery we love in Chester. the curator there has been on the podcast too. Um, the show Hockney to Himid 60 years of British printmaking opened last year but it is still on until March with over 100 prints by artists from Chris Ophelia to Grayson Perry Peter Blake and Edward Borden. And can I just confess a special interest in Edward Borden as he illustrated my father's book, which was a whimsical and charming little guide to London in the 50s called London A to Z by John Metcalf. Um, it's actually been reprinted and is definitely on sale at Pallant House as well as elsewhere. So that's my little plug for that. Amazing. I never knew your dad had done 
the London A to Z. Of course, our younger listeners, and this podcast skews very young, won't know what an A to Z is, but it was basically how you found your way around before uh, Google Maps. What um, is your father's favourite place in his London A to Z? Oh, very good question. I have to go and reread it. <laughs> it's, so, it's so ancient. Oh, my God. <laughs> it should be. Should be. I... Your tongue. Anyway, moving swiftly on, Save Charlotte's Embarrassment. We've got the National Museum of Scotland uh, with a huge exhibition about that incredible book, Audubon's Birds of America. It's one of the world's rarest and most coveted books, as you all know. And of course, my absolutely favourite place in the world, the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. There's a wonderful exhibition there opening in February called Full Circle, David, dedicated to David Nash's drawings. Uh, and in Kettle Yard in Cambridge, uh, you've got Ai Weiwei's The Liberty of Doubt, juxtaposing antique Chinese objects with his own chosen artworks. Anyone who hasn't been to Kettle's Yard should make it a New Year's resolution to go. It's another of those absolute gems hidden away near Magdalen in Cambridge. Between 1957 and 1973, it was the home of Jim and Helen Ede who put together a remarkable collection of art, including paintings by Ben and Winifred Nicholson, Alfred Wallace, Christopher Wood, David Jones and Miro, as well as sculptures by Gaudia Breschka, Brancusi, Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth. These were all carefully placed alongside furniture, glass and ceramics, stones and other natural objects. And Jim's vision was that this should never be a gallery or a museum, but a way of reflecting his taste in art and and a continuing way of life. It was created with students in mind, so he kept the open house every term afternoon and was usually there himself. In 1966, he donated the house and contents to the university. And it really does feel as if he's just walked out of the room and refreshingly, there are no labels anywhere. It really is one of those small but perfectly formed little museums or galleries. Plus, you get the added bonus of Ai Weiwei if you go now. And so back to London and Francis Bacon, his show Man and Beast opened last week at the Royal Academy, illustrating Bacon's belief that humanity was simply another branch of the animal kingdom and we all have an inner beast. That's so true as far as Charlotte (laughs) is concerned. But Bacon Van Everywhere, there's everything here, screaming popes, crucifixions, and quite a bit of gay sex. The show also brings together the trio of magnificent bullfighting scenes for the first time since they were painted. The show's only on till April 17th. It's bound to be hugely popular. Make sure you get your ticket. Yeah, now I've seen the show and the Royal Academy has really done it beautifully as they have those huge high ceiling rooms so they can really afford to space the enormous paintings out. The other thing I thought was really interesting was the way they showed photographs by Edward Mindbridge, who was a huge influence on Bacon's work. In the 1870s, Mindbridge took photographs of animals in motion and you can really see how much Bacon took from these. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Now, to coincide with the exhibition, there's a new book called Bacon in Moscow by the art dealer and gallery owner James Birch, which tells the story of James as a young art dealer putting on an exhibition of Francis Bacon's paintings in Moscow in the late 80s. Grayson Perry, to whom James gave his first show in 1984, has described the book as a rocking cultural adventure. It's certainly a rollicking read and we're delighted that James Birch is with us this morning to tell us all about it. Good morning, James. Good morning to you. Uh, James, very nice to meet you. It's Ed here. I didn't realise you'd um, given Grayson Perry his first show. You're responsible for a lot. Um, <laughs> you can take that either way. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you took Gilbert and George to Russia and to China. We had That's Gilbert on the podcast last year. That was 
fantastic. God knows what the Chinese and Russians made of them. <laughs> anyway, what we want to talk to you, first of all, I mean, we can do a great review of the art world for the last 40 years during this podcast. That'll be a lot of fun. But let's start with Francis Bacon, because uh, in fact, in the book, there's a photograph in you, of you in the bath, uh, age seven, taken by Francis Bacon. That would now be illegal. Uh, but you're, you're, you've obviously known him, knew him from a very young age. Probably about that, that about that age, um, because um, my parents had a sort of a summer cottage in a place called Fingeringhoe, which is also an unusual name, which is across <laughs> the water from Wivenhoe, which is where uh, these two artists, Richard Chopping and Dennis Worth Miller, lived. And Francis was Francis Baker was a friend of theirs, and they would come over to my parents' um, cottage. And I think there was a camera lying around, and I was in the bath, and Francis took this photograph. And people said later on, you know, about why, you know, to my mother, why, you know, isn't that a bit, uh, a bit uh, strange? She said, no, no, I completely trust them. <laughs> the first question about Francis Bacon is everyone talks about his studio, which was famously filthy and shambolic. Um, was it as filthy and shambolic as people say? Well, I mean, his, his house, which was in Rees Mews in South Ken, it was an old uh, sort of Mews cottage. And you go in the front door and you go up these very steep stairs with uh, sort of iron railing on one side and rope on the other. And I can imagine you know, Francis sort of, uh, when he's sort of staggering home, staggering <laughs> up the stairs, holding onto this rope. And then when you come up the stairs to the left, there's a sort of little lavatory and to the, and to the left further on, it's his, sorry, to his right, then it's his studio. And then you go down into the corridor, and then there's his, his, his kitchen, which was quite small, like more like a galley. And then what looked like a table was actually a bathtub that he had a sort of wood over the top. And then you go further, go further along, and then you come to his um, living room, which and bedroom. And there was a table, and in, and then in the corner was his bed with some oxygen tanks. And to the left of that was a sort of mirror, a round mirror that was cracked, which was probably from when he was an interior designer in the 30s. Can you tell us a bit more about what his studio was like? I mean, it was absolutely, it was more like a, looking at a skip than um, a studio. <laughs> it's just rags and bits of paper and everything all over the place. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And I mean, the second thing about Bacon, of course, is, is uh, as a notoriously heavy drinker around Soho. Well, the extraordinary thing was I had a gallery which was about, uh, well, it was sort of underneath, about two doors down from the Conley Room, the notorious drinking club. And so Francis would sometimes just pop into the gallery in the afternoon and say, oh, do you, want, do you fancy a drink? And um, off we'd go upstairs to the Conley Room. And whereupon there'd be endless amounts of champagne. And um, then some, they'd be saying, I'm bored here, let's go somewhere else. So we went to the Groucho Club, which was, again, about two, two doors down. And then you had the French house. And that was sort of, in those days, rather kind of not so busy as it is now and, and good fun. And was there a sort of order you had to do them in? Like sort of a starter, main course and dessert? That's absolutely true because, <laughs> because with pubs in those days, they were only open from, what was it, 11 till 3. And then they closed till 5 o'clock or 5.30. So that would start off with the French house and then move, then the Conley Room opened up at 3 o'clock. So I went to the Conley Room and that closed at 11 o'clock and went on to the Groucher Club, which closed at 1 o'clock. And who were the kind of regulars then when you went on this mini pub crawl? Sometimes his companion from um, Suffolk, um, John Edwards, and uh, sometimes Bruce Bernard, who was, um, who was uh, at that time uh, sort of editor of the Independent magazine. Um, it just depended. And people came and went. Um, and sometimes people came that um, Francis didn't know, and John Edwards was a very good sort of guard against that. 
And was did Francis? So was Francis at the centre of all this? Was he the one who sort of told the anecdotes and everyone crowded around him, and then a few sort of groupies on the outside trying to sort of get a word with the great man? Or was he That's sort true. of part of the no, group? He was, he was he was part of the group, but he, he but everybody was sort of in, in awe of him that knew who knew about Francis. A lot of people didn't even recognise who he was, and you know, there were all these sort of anecdotes that um, he was being in a pub and somebody said. Oh, what do you do? He said, I'm a painter. He said, oh, my house needs decorating. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so can we, can we hear a bit more about John Edwards? Because when you took Francis Bacon to Moscow, I mean, in the end, he never went and John Edwards went instead. So what was their relationship? I think after Francis' friend, George Dyer, died in the, in the 71, 72, um, he, was sort of, he was extremely upset. And John was sort of not dissimilar from George Dyer, but um, a much more sort of uh, streetwise. And um, he he just he, he looked he looked after uh, John. It was a bit like a sort of clucking hen, you know. He said, "Oh, John, you know, you mustn't get lend your your Rolls Royce to somebody, you know, unless they you know they've got proper license and everything." I mean, he was really quite funny about uh, John. One time we went to. Uh, the restaurant Wilson's in German Street, um, a very old-fashioned restaurant, and, and all the sort of um, the waitresses wearing sort of uh, white coats like nannies. Um, anyway, uh, I went there with Francis and John, and um, Francis said to John, well, "What do you have?" He said, "I have. I think I will have bangers and mash." And Francis said, "It's not on the menu." He said, "Oh, I'm sure they'll do it for him because J John Edwards was totally dyslexic; he couldn't read." Anyway, so they made him specially bangers and mash in a sort of fish restaurant. But were they lovers, James, or not? No, I mean that's what uh, um, John always told me. I think maybe they'd, they'd had, mm. I don't know, a hand job or something. But that was that was all. <laughs> Francis never had Francis Bacon never had a long term partner, as it were. He well, played the field, yes. if I can put it delicately. Well, no, I mean, George Dyer was certainly a, um, a long-time partner, and before that, um, uh, Peter Lacey. So you're getting hammered in these pubs with bacon, and uh, you, uh, in the middle of all this, you suddenly come up with this idea, Francis, why don't we go and do an exhibition in Moscow? How did that come about? Um, <laughs> that's not quite what happened. Um, what happened was um, I'd been in Moscow... And I wanted to take 10 young artists to Moscow, as in um, Brayson Perry and the Neonatures. And I realised within, um, well, within a day, this was going to be impossible. Who's going to pay for it? And so I, sort of, when I went round to various artist studios, which one had to do, I would say, who, who, what's the one artist you really admire in the world? And they all said, Francis Bacon. And I said, really? And they'd, I'd go to their sort of bookshelves and bring out some tatty dog-eared magazine, that black and white, with some Bacon pictures. And I said to... Sergei Klopov, my sort of fixer in, in Moscow, I said, um, you know, what about Francis Bacon? He said, well, that's a very good idea, let's see. And so um, when I came back to London, <coughs> I had to sort of sort out a few things. And then when Francis came to my gallery, and we went off to have drinks in the common room and then supper down the road. I said, how would you like to have an exhibition in Moscow? He said, I'd be delighted. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. And so the next, next day I rang him and I said, just Francis, I'm just checking you still want to have a show in Moscow. And he was rather annoyed by this and said, yes, I do really want to have a show. But so let's unpack this a bit, because our younger listeners, this podcast skews very young. We're very trendy. Um, <laughs> right. They, they won't remember the Soviet Union. But for me, who I actually went to Moscow in 1985, I think, or 83. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a pretty closed society. So what on earth made you in the first place, you know, before even Bacon, 
decide that you would try and kind of take British artists to Moscow? Well, it was one of those things where I went to a party and um, I didn't know very many people there, but I bumped into this friend of mine, Bob Chenisner, who I didn't, well, at that time I didn't know very well. And he said, what are you up to? And I said, I want to take 10 young artists to New York. Uh, he said, well, forget New York, take them to Moscow. And I said, how do I do that? And he said, well, I'll tell you. Um, ring the next day, I rang him the next day, and he said, go to the Soviet section of UNESCO, which is in Paris, and which I went along to, and uh, met up with Sergei Klokov. And um, uh, I showed him these slides of these 10 young artists, and he said, great, you know, and, and then he said, he told me the thing, to, what letter to write to. And again, in those days, you couldn't just send a, a letter, you had to get somebody to deliver it for you, um, which I did. And uh, nothing happened, nothing happened. And then six months later, I got a telegram from the Soviet Union saying, please, James Birch, come VIP to Moscow, which is what <laughs> I did. I don't understand. Why didn't the Soviet authorities say, first of all, we don't want degenerate Western art in our city corrupting our youth? And secondly, how on earth would anyone in Moscow get hold of kind of books about bacon or indeed others? Uh, with tourists, I mean, the, you know, the, there was sort of hotels for in tourists and they'll go there and they might leave a magazine or... Um, because that's, you know, that sort of currency in those days was you could take magazines, which they all you know, thirsty for, or the classic thing, blue jeans, or in pens, uh, digital watches, that, that was the sort of currency. This was the time of Perestroika and Glasnost, and so things were opening up, and um, they, dealing with Sergei Klokov, they didn't, and the Union of Artists, which the Union of Artists look after all the living artists in, in, in Russia. And so they were beginning to be open up for ideas. But what they wanted me to do was to bring Francis Bacon before he had an exhibition to check him out that he wasn't a decadent Western artist when he was, but anyway. <laughs> and did he go? No. No, he didn't. Because at the end, I, with asthma attacks, I mean, it would have been fatal. But there's a story behind that, isn't, isn't there? Yes, because for the catalogue um, for the Bacon Show in Moscow, um, he wanted uh, Grey Gary, who was then head of Sotheby's, director of Sotheby's, and he wanted him to write a piece. And David Sylvester, who's written many books on Francis Bacon, was rather peeved by this. And so sort of whispered in sort of Francis' ear, oh, you know, you're now a rich man, Francis. I don't think, you know, you might get kidnapped. I don't think you should go. Or you might go on a train to, as those days called Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, because he wanted to see the Rembrandts and the Hermitage. You, they, they, they might blow up the train. So that's basically what happened. So that's what made him nervous about going. So Bacon died uh, sort of four years after the Moscow show, uh, visiting his lover, Jose Capello in Madrid. But it's quite interesting, the exhibition in Moscow got very mixed reviews. Some were absolutely ecstatic and some were very baffled. Uh, indeed, one of my favorite phrases was um, some Russian saying, we want Bacon, not Francis Bacon. <laughs> <That's> um, <true. laughs> I mean, we now obviously think of Bacon as part of the pantheon, but he was a controversial artist. Oh, totally controversial. And it's, yeah, it's quite extraordinary that um, now it's, he's sort of now sort of become mainstream. And what, what is fascinating is that um, he never seems to go away. He's never out of fashion from whether mm. even to sort of young people, they absolutely adore his work. And why, why do you think that is? Because he, he does get, he is kind of Marmite, isn't he? You either absolutely love him or you hate him. Yes, that is true. He's definitely Marmite. I think it's the imagery which is so extraordinary and unique. I mean, there's nothing else like his work around. 
And even when people try and copy it, you just know that's a copy and then because it's, it's, it's trying to be Francis Bacon and so it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I know you haven't had time to, to do anything more than glimpse the show at the Royal Academy, but do you think there's anything in it that, that might change people's minds? Well, the last uh, sort of exhibition of Francis Bacon was in the Tate, mm, God, I'm not sure, about 10 years ago. But in this show in, in the Royal Academy, what's, I think, quite interesting, there's a few pictures that... Um, that was also went to Moscow. And in fact, for example, there's one which I've always found quite interesting. It's a, a head of sort of like an animal with, with sharp teeth and an ear and this sort of cage going around it and a sort of toggle coming down. And I remember in the, in the Tate Gallery exhibition 1985, um, it's called Head Number One, 1948. And I remember going around with Dennis Worth Miller, who was explaining the pictures, and he said this was originally meant to be a portrait of Lord Sainsbury, but it didn't work out, so <laughs> he turned it into a lake. <laughs> but I want to ask you about that toggle, right? Because I was really intrigued because there were so many of these paintings had this mysterious, it looks like something you'd pull a blind down with. What is that about? Because there's, it, there, it's in so many of the pictures. I don't know exactly, it's because in, in his... Um, uh, living room slash bedroom um, there's just a naked light bulb and the, that which is connected to the toggle which turns it on and off and he, that's why it's it's completely from you know observed from his life is, is that it it's not it doesn't symbolize anything it's just it's no. just there, there it is how absolutely fascinating. there it is exactly <laughs> well that's the answer how extraordinary yeah. okay thank you for that if they can ever sit down and talk to you about what motivated him to paint why you know what drove him, what he wanted to depict. No, he, did, he, he was quite good like that. He did, what, he did want to talk about his art. I mean, occasionally he would talk about other people's art, but never his own. And he, and he didn't really like being questioned what motivates him to paint. How interesting. What, who were his favourite painters? He um, was a big fan of Richard Hamilton, the um, British pop artist. Well, I think his, I mean, his influence was certainly um, Rembrandt and Velasquez. And then, of course, um, Sergei Eisenstein, the, the Soviet um, film director, or Russian film director. Oh, tell us a bit about that. Well, in the, in the Screaming Pope series, um, there's a, the Pope's got a, his mouth open, and there's a scene in Battleship Potemkin of a, a, a sort of nanny who's falling down the steps in Odessa with a pram, and she looks like she's been shot in her eye, and her mouth is screaming. And also, the other artist later, or other photographer later on, Peter Beard, who did a, a lots of photos oh, yeah. in, in Africa. Yeah, wonderful collage. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, Francis did some paintings. I, did a, I think about, oh, God, five or six portraits of Peter Beer. They got on very well. There was even suggestion that, I mean, he was very um, heterosexual, Peter Beer, but there was, there, was, there, was sort of, there was a thought that he might have had a, a fling somewhere along the line. I mean, the book is absolutely, fa I mean, the book is great, not just about, um, Francis and so many insights into his character and everything, but such an amazing, you know, like Ed says, he went to Russia in the 80s. I went to Russia first time in the 80s. Now, you really do sum it up brilliantly. I mean, these wide streets, and which were very clean, I mean, and you have to say that, but this, this terrible smell of cheap petrol, the benzene, and sort of Russian um, cigarettes and body odour. Bring bacon alive for us as we sort of come to the conclusion of this podcast. I mean, if I had walked into the colony room or the Groucho with, ba with bacon sitting there and you'd been kind enough to introduce me and draw me into the inner circle, would I have found him welcoming and warm or taciturn and suspicious? 
No, you'd find him welcoming and warm, definitely. He was always intrigued and interested in people. But he was very susceptible to beauty, wasn't he? Because you, um, you had a very beautiful girlfriend in Moscow, about which there's quite a bit in, in your book. And she came to live with you for a bit in London and Francis really took a shine to her. That's absolutely true. Um, in fact, one day um, she was called Elena Hudjakova. Elena and I were walking down Piccadilly and bumped into Francis and, um, and he said, oh, hello, my dear, to her. And uh, he said, well, let's, let's go for a drink. And uh, um, he said, let's go to the Ritz. But in those days, you had to wear a tie to the Ritz. So uh, Francis went off and bought me, bought me a tie and, and we went to the Ritz and we sat down in that sort of, the, I suppose, the inner atrium, which has got lots of gold and white white chairs, etc. And um, uh, Francis talked to Elena and uh, she, he, she said something like, oh, this is bourgeois rubbish or something. And Francis <laughs> said, sorry. That's why she said, no, you you look like bourgeois rubbish. Anyway, he looked a bit sort of nervous about that. Anyway, it, it, it got lost in translation. It all turned out fine in the end. And then he took us to Wilton's. And the, the book, everybody, is called Bacon in Moscow and full, actually really beautifully illustrated, isn't it, James? It's full of photographs and, and all the letters he sent you. And I mean, it's absolutely great. So, James, thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about Francis Bacon. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, both of you. That's nearly all we've got time for this week. But before we go, we just wanted to chat briefly about theatre, because last week, Charlotte and I went to see Eddie Redmayne and Jesse Buckley in Cabaret at the Playhouse Theatre. Now, the Playhouse, which is just by Embankment opposite the Corinthian Hotel, is a very interesting theatre. It's where I saw Jungle, the brilliant Sonia Friedman production of the play about the migrants' camp in Calais that became known as the Jungle. Back then, the Playhouse had become a cafe in the Jungle, and that was one of the most memorable plays I've ever seen. This time, they converted the theatre into the Kit Kat Club, and they've really done it quite exceptionally, and we loved it. We did love it. Eddie Redmayne is absolutely extraordinary. So they're changing the cast on the 21st of March. So you've got to beg, cheat, steal, borrow, do whatever you can to get a ticket to see Eddie Redmayne's performance as the MC because it is pretty extraordinary. It's a bit like seeing Laurence Olivier play the entertainer. It will become, I think, iconic. He mm. manages to distort his body quite grotesquely to play the part of a twisted, hunched, ageing man. And it's an extraordinary feat in and of itself. I mean, like so many girls of my generation, I was taken to see Cabaret by my mother when I was way under 18. So I had to borrow lots of her makeup and clothes to sneak in as it was an ex certificate. But seeing this has really made me want to hunt the original film out again, but it's quite hard to find. Um, have, did you find it, Ed? I haven't found it yet. My daughter is a movie nut, so I will have to find it and force her to watch it and tell her how brilliant it is. It's 50 years since it was made, because it was made in, and you'd think that it was readily, readily available on Netflix, but it isn't. You know, what I liked about this this play, though, is that um, while they had new musical numbers in it, which made it a bit more like a musical um, than, the, than the film was, once you got into the Kit Kat Club and the MC's domain that the Playhouse had sort of done so imaginatively, they really did such justice to the original songs. And I really admire Jesse Buckley because, you know, for taking on the role, because Sally Bowles really was Liza Minnelli's great role and a bloody tough act to follow, but she gave it her all and did make the part her own. Yes, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of musicals and I kind of sat through the first half of Cabaret thinking, the thing about musicals is you've got to love the music you've got to love the songs because actually the plots are often pretty thin uh yeah. but um the plot of cabaret if i can put it that way does uh take a 
as you would expect, a, a poignant twist. Um, so it does grab your attention in that way. But as I say, the, the production itself is so extraordinary and so kind of incredible that, you know, it was, I loved it. It was absolutely fantastic. It was absolutely superb. So if you get a chance, just grab it and go. But that really is all we've got time for now. But don't forget that the new edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and at Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. We can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with all the latest news on interiors from Carol Annette. We love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can email us at charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. We'll see you next week. We'll be talking to Dylan Jones, the amazing editor of GQ. I think he edited for about three centuries. He's now <laughs> co-curator of an upcoming exhibition of photographs by the Society of Photographer Dave Bennett. Dave, of course, has taken my picture at many, many <laughs> parties. Uh, and it's going to be great talking to Dylan because, uh, you know, he has been on the scene for 30 years. He's seen it all from punk to the present day. He's written books about people like Bowie. Um, so in terms of popular culture, Half an Hour with Dylan Jones will be a fascinating tour d'horizon. <laughs> I agree, Wolf. Can't wait. See you next week. Take care.